This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moeller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. About this time of year, Americans find their ears tuned to familiar music. And for American Christians, as well as many others, much of that music is associated with one single composer and one great work. That great work is the oratorio, Messiah. The composer is George Frederick Handel, and that music has found its way into our hearts, our minds, and even the way we hear the scriptures. The particulars of this oratorio are fascinating. The biography of the composer, insofar as it can be known to us, is itself very interesting. The story of how this oratorio came to be is a real story unto itself. And how we hear the Messiah now, well, that continues the story. Calvin Stapert has taught since 1969 at Calvin College, where he has been professor of music, the chairman of the music department, and now professor emeritus of music. He's also the author of several books, including the recently released work, Handel's Messiah, Comfort for God's People. Professor Stapert, welcome to Thinking in Public. Thank you. Professor Stapert, your work really places Handel in historical context. Uh, you know, he was born at a very interesting time, the same year that Johann Sebastian Bach was born. And so this is a time in which there is, is a great deal of, of obviously, uh, musical talent. Uh, yes, certainly. Um, not only Bach and Handel, but uh, the great uh, keyboard composer, uh, Scarlatti, who was born in the same year, and... Um, of course, a half a generation or so later, Haydn is coming down the road, so there is an enormous amount of musical talent. Yeah, I think what many people in, in our generation tend to think is of, uh, of these classical musicians as, as, as something of, uh, of, of miracles in their own right. Uh, you know, the, as, as the, the Mozarts in the box as, as persons who stood out in their own times, and certainly they did, but this is an environment in which there is so much really wonderful music being written and this is indeed the, the music that is the, the common musical parlance of the day. Yes. Um, and the, the whole notion of them being uh, something special, the, the idea of a genius, uh, something apart from normal people, uh, is really a, a concept that wasn't uh, afloat at that time. They were, they were craftsmen. They were skilled at what they did. And what these composers did better than anybody else was write music. They and were often, um, it often came by way of their families, as it did in Bach, but not, not always. Handel's uh, musical, uh, his uh, family was not a particularly musical. But with, with, with study and training and practice, um, they developed their God-given skills and became exceptional. When most of us think of Handel, we, we think, of course, of Messiah and his other oratorios. I really appreciate how in your book you, you define what the or oratorio is and, and how it came about. Would you tell us that story? Sure. Um, oratorio, you might say, is the counterpart to opera. Um, opera, of course, is a, a stage drama which is entirely uh, set to music. Um, oratorio is also a dramatic story set to music, uh, but not staged, and not costumes and not 
sets and that whole thing. Um, and oratorio developed alongside opera, um, as I say, sort of as its sacred counterpart. Uh, it developed first in Italy. Uh, it spread to Germany. It did not spread to England, where Handel was working. Um, it was really Handel's invention, you might say, uh, to uh, uh, write English oratorio. Well, when he wrote this uh, th- this new genre of English oratorio, he really largely redefined music as it was understood in its uh, in its context there in England. One of the things you point out in your book is that without embarrassment, these composers and those who sponsored them considered their work entertainment. Yes, um, <laughs> that's true. You you hear it uh, in in the uh, descriptions of the writers. They they refer to this as entertainment and that's that's part of a a um, a long-standing theory of art that is that art had a dual function to delight or entertain and to teach and the two things were not seen as incompatible uh, it wasn't seen as teaching kind of uh, being a tacked on thing um, you know, sort of the moral of the story thing, but the two, the teaching and the entertaining or the teaching and the delighting were seen as two sides of the same coin. You taught in order to delight, you delighted in order to teach. Um, and so um, the the uh, oratorio is uh, a, a, you might say, a preeminent genre of that kind of uh, of a dual function. It, you went to the oratorio the same way you went to the opera. Um, and operas, too, were meant to teach. But in the oratorio, the teaching is done by way of the sacred stories, and in particular, the stories of the Old Testament, uh, which simply by themselves are entertaining enough. I mean, they're Sure. Wonderful, exciting stories of Samson and David and uh, the deliverance from uh, Egypt and, and that sort of thing. Well, you know, in your work, you mentioned that in 1742, Handel staged his, uh, or, or saw the performance of his, his last opera, and then he turned oratorio. Messiah followed three weeks after that operatic performance, and then after Messiah came 14 more oratorios over the next 10 years. So right. Handel made a decisive turn here, and the Messiah is uh, is kind of a, uh, a hinge in that turn. Yes, the Messiah um, really marks his complete break from opera. He'd been going about a decade, and well, in fact, exactly a decade. 1732 is when he uh, put on his first oratorio. That was Esther. Um, and he... He wasn't ready to give up opera. Opera was failing. Uh, crowds were going down. It was, it was failing financially. Uh, but he wasn't quite ready to give it entirely up at that time. And so for about a decade, he's, um, he's trying to keep the opera going, uh, but he's also uh, inserting oratorio now and then. But, yeah, as, as you said in the in the concert series that he was doing in Dublin in the uh, spring of 
1742. Uh, one of the concerts he did was a concert version of one of his operas that is not staged. That was the last time he conducted and certainly uh, didn't write any more operas either after that time. So he makes the turn and to the oratorio. And then Messiah followed right on its heels, and after that, it was entirely oratorio. So the oratorio is somewhat opera-like, but it is not staged. It uh, it also, in the case of, of Messiah and in the case of Handel, brings something new in, and that's the chorus, uh, a, a large choir that is involved here as well. Now, we think of it as, as, at least I tend to think of it as a very large choir, when I read of the first performance in Dublin, it was made up of, uh, of a relatively small choir of men and boys. But nonetheless, the choir seems to be something that is absolutely necessary to Messiah, but not something that's customarily found in opera. That's correct, um, at least not in Italian opera, which was the big thing that uh, was sweeping Europe at the time. Um, so when he switched from opera to oratorio, um, he, first of all, he had the, the, the basic solo genres uh, ready at hand, the recitatives and arias for the solo singers. Uh, but the, the, the oratorios called for uh, choruses in quite heavy dose. And um, so that, that's a new element. Well, that's in, a part of what added so much to my appreciation of Handel from your work, is understanding that... Here's a man who really had very little experience in choral composition at all, who turns out in a matter of a few weeks, Messiah. And at least to to me, that was not only a revelation, but an incredibly impressive achievement on the part of a composer. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't that he was entirely without choral uh, experience before that. He, he had written some coronation anthems. He had written some anthems for... Uh, the Duke of Chandos, um, and there were some other uh, semi-dramatic English works that he had written. Um, so he had some some choral experience, uh, but the, what he also had going for him was that he just happened to have a natural, fantastic talent for writing for the choir. Uh, it just seems to have been second nature for him. Well, that's hard to imagine, a talent of, of that uh, prodigious uh, a scale. But uh, on the other hand, uh, even more fascinating to me is the speed with which he wrote these works. And you mentioned in your book that when he sat down, having been given the libretto, and we'll talk about that in a moment, to uh, what we know as Messiah, it was in a matter of, of just a few weeks that he wrote and composed the entire work. Yeah, 24 days to be exact. Uh, his, his autograph score, that means his, his original score, um, on the first page, it's dated, um, what is it, September 21, I, uh, no, wait a minute, August something, and then September something on the last page when he finished it. Um, and that, that, is, um, that is incredible speed, um, especially to us who are, more accustomed to the idea that uh, composers labored long and hard uh, over these masterpieces. But at the time, uh, we're talking the Baroque period of music history, the 17th and early 18th century, uh, these composers were very, um, 
Well, they were fast. Um, and Messiah was maybe a bit faster than normal, but it wasn't really uncharacteristic. In fact, after he finished uh, Messiah, he set to work on Samson. And in a matter of about a month, he had finished Samson as well. <laughs> it, his, his, his compositional um, activity was mainly concentrated in the relatively short period, basically the summer, summer and early fall, uh, between concert seasons. And so he would do his composing then for the music that he wanted to do in the next season. Now, as the Messiah actually came to be, the originating thought did not come from Handel, but rather from Charles Jennings, who was the man who wrote the libretto. So, in in other words, uh, this man who had a very clear theological agenda, as well as uh, a very important cultural agenda, uh, wrote this entire libretto, or, or all the words and text, and only then handed it over to Handel, whom he chose to write the music. That's correct. Um, Jennings was a... Well, Jennings knew Handel, um, and they had worked together before, uh, at least on one oratorio, Saul, which predates Messiah by two years. Um, Jennings wrote the libretto for that. And he might have written uh, the libretto for Israel and Egypt, although we're not sure of that. That's another one that uh, predates Messiah by a short time. Um, so they knew each other, and Jennings was a, uh, a great fan of Handel's music. He, he thought very highly of Handel. Um, and so when he had this really very special libretto of Messiah, and we might talk about that in, in, in a bit, what was so special about it, um, he wasn't going to go, go with it to anybody but the best. And so he sent it to Handel and was uh, eager that Handel would make it his greatest work. Uh, and then the ironic thing is, he was expecting Handel to spend about a year on it. And Handel spent a little more than three weeks on it. And when he found that out, he was very disappointed. He thought Handel had given his, uh, his libretto short shrift. Well, as you point out in your book, this oratorio has never had to be revived from its release in 1742 until the present. Right. It has been continuously performed. And yeah. uh, Charles Jennings, it appears, had a very misplaced lack of confidence in, <laughs> in Handel's speed in writing and composing this great yeah. oratorio. Yeah. You know, one of the interesting aspects of this particular oratorio is that it is most often misidentified. It is not, in its title, The Messiah. It is simply Messiah. As we come to understand the history of this particular oratorio and how it came to be written, we do come to understand that the title gets right to the essence of the thing, of the story that's going to be told. Now, as we look at this particular oratorio, we come to understand that the story is told in ways that made sense there in the 18th century when it was written, but continue to make sense to us today. The text is the scripture, and through this oratorio, the text of the scripture takes on a new and very memorable life.
Professor Stiefert, in your book, Handel's Messiah, Comfort for God's People, you provide background to this oratorio that really helps us to understand it as we might be, for instance, at this Christmas and Advent season, listening uh, to Messiah or perhaps attending a performance of either the entire oratorio or portions of the oratorio. You point out that Charles Jennings, in writing this libretto, had a, a theological agenda, and it was written within a particular time of uh, of a theological context. And the great alternative to Orthodox Christianity that Charles Jennings had very much in mind as a target in in terms of what he was doing with Messiah was deism. Yes. Yeah, deism was uh, was was uh, spreading fat in Europe, uh, including England, um, making inroads into the church. Uh, deism being that religion which still believes in a God, but uh, not in Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world, simply a God who made the world and, uh, you might say, left it to its own devices. Um, and Jennings, as you mentioned, was, was very concerned about the inroads that deism was making, uh, not only in culture in general, but into the church as well. And so this libretto, this collection of scripture texts, uh, has as its focus, uh, obviously, Messiah, the, the second person of the Trinity, the one who had been promised by the prophets for a long time, uh, who would come and redeem the world. Um, so the libretto, I, there, th- I think it's were, important that we stipulate here that the uh, the textual content to this oratorio is really not to be attributed to Handel, but rather to Charles Jennings. Uh, Handel that, set it to music, but Jennings wrote the, the libretto or the text. He had, he had done so with deism very much in the background, and his effort was an attempt to assert Orthodox Christianity in a time of tremendous theological confusion, and to use the means of the oratorio to bring about this kind of uh, what we might call a defense of the gospel, even, uh, in the midst of very uncertain times. But it's interesting when we look at the textual basis from Scripture, and you point out in your book that one of the things that makes Messiah unique is that, uh, well, if, if not completely unique, of, of uh, almost singularly distinctive in the fact that it, it is drawn almost entirely from Scripture. And and as you look at those scriptural texts, it's amazing how much of it is drawn from the prophet Isaiah. Yes. Um, yeah. The the uh, libretto is entirely from uh, from the scripture. There's not a not a word that's Jenin's own, <laughs> um, and it's mostly Old Testament and uh, Isaiah. The prophecies of Isaiah just uh, figure very largely in it. Um, and in this way, Handel, uh, Messiah is unique. Um, and it, it's, a, it's a curious way, you might say, of telling the story of Jesus' work, his birth, his, his life, his suffering, his death, his resurrection, and so on, um, done almost entirely through prophecy. Um, some have speculated that this has to do with um, the the uh, well reticence, the the uh, in fact forbidding uh, having Jesus 
as a real character in a dramatic work. They, they would, uh, it'd be okay to have somebody playing the part of Samson or of Saul or of David or Joshua, but to have someone, even if it's not a staged work, but to have someone be Jesus, uh, that was, that just simply wouldn't go. So he gets at it by way of the prophecies. And, of course, to the, to the Christian who has uh, long accepted these prophecies as being of Jesus, uh, it's very clear that the whole thing is about Jesus. But it's so it's interesting to mention that. Shepherd and, and so yeah. on is always uh, clearly reference to Jesus. Well, it's so interesting you mentioned that because theological critiques of this great oratorio uh, point out several things, such as the fact that at no point in the oratorio itself is is Christ clearly identified as the Messiah. It simply is implied, and uh, I would argue even made explicit, by the story that is told. Mm-hmm. And, and that's a very interesting critique, because when Christians listen to Messiah, especially those of us who've been kind of trained by our own church experience to listen to it, we may assume certain things that actually are not in the libretto. Now, one of the things that you also point out is that the oratory was to tell a story. So if, if I ask you point blank, what story is Messiah telling? How would you summarize that? It's the story of salvation. It's the story of the rescue of the fallen people uh, from the clutches of Satan and sin and death. Um, and the story begins with the coming of this Savior, and it ends um, around the throne in in uh, Revelation uh, with the Lamb that was slain uh, being honored by the four beasts, the four and twenty elders, uh, the myriads and myriads of angels, and all of creation. Uh, singing worthy is the lamb that music is so familiar to us that for many americans and uh, for others in the english-speaking world when we hear certain biblical texts we almost hear them to the tune of handel's messiah yes that's that's definitely true um the music has a has a way of 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 helping us remember texts it's a great mnemonic device, and when we hear words uh, sung, they they stick in our minds. And so these scripture passages uh, stick in people's minds by way of of the uh, melodies that they've heard in Messiah. Now, one of the things that uh, that this certainly comes to mind is the fact that as we're having this conversation, very much uh, with Christmas approaching. In the American context, the the Messiah is most often associated with Christmas, and uh, churches, uh, civic performances of this oratorio tend to be located in December with the Advent and Christmas season. But when you when you really look at the uh, at the story, th- there's no particular reason why it should be here rather than associated with Easter. Uh, no, <laughs> there is no reason. In fact. Um... Easter was the uh, original uh, source. I mean, it was it was typically performed uh, 
during the Lenten season. Uh, in fact, all of Handel's performances in his lifetime took place in the spring. So why do you think uh, we, we, we see it differently? Why, is, is that just uh, something of a cultural accident, or is there, is there some reason that you believe that, uh, uh, that we do it this way? If there's a reason, it escapes me. <laughs> um, I, I don't know when this started uh, and, and why it started there, why it t- took hold and stays there. Um, I do think there's a, there's a certain appropriateness to, you might say, at the beginning of the church year, looking ahead at the whole story. And, of course, this, this story does start with the Christmas part. Uh, part one of, of Messiah is definitely the Incarnation. Uh, and then part two starts with the suffering and death um, and goes on from there. Um, but, you know, why it has settled in at uh, at Christmas time rather than Easter time uh, is something I don't know. Well, uh, nor do I, but I do think it's interesting that it tells us something about how we understand this oratorio. It tells us that we associate it with the great with the great theme of incarnation, uh, front and center. And I, I don't think Handel would be at all offended by that, uh, because that is indeed the great announcement that is made by this great oratorio. Professor Stapet, I have to ask you before I let you go, what is your favorite recording of, of Messiah? Oh, well, my favorite is the... Uh the one by Bach Collegium Japan, uh, directed by Misaki Suzuki. Um, they are they are one of the great performing uh, organizations of Baroque music, particularly of Bach, but of Baroque music in general. And Misaki Suzuki thoroughly understands these Christian texts and fully believes them himself, and it comes through in his music. Well, I guarantee well, that's my you. Favorite. There are many. There are many good performances, though. Well, I, I promise you, I'm going to order that one right away. And it tells me something that actually delights me uh, to know that this great oratorio, written in in England by a German composer, performed first in Dublin, Ireland, and continuously thereafter, finds uh, in your favorite recording one that was done in Japan. There's something yeah. absolutely powerful and uh, and I think quite moving about that. Yeah. Their sound has gone out into all the world. <laughs> Taken in its full scale, Messiah is a massive composition, and for good reason. Just consider the story that it's telling. The story of God's salvation of his people, beginning with the promise that was given to Israel through the prophet Isaiah and going all the way to the throne scene in the book of Revelation as the blessed ones of God are gathered to declare the glory of the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. It's a massive piece of music. It is a deeply textured composition. It is a very complex piece of of musical achievement. And most of us know it by its parts. There are certain components of Messiah that have taken deep residence in our minds. They have taken such residence in our imagination and in our musical memory that we do indeed, as we've just discussed, tend to hear many portions of Scripture as if set to music by Handel. That tells us something about the power of music. 
It also tells us something about why we should consider so carefully what we hear and why we are so drawn to it. Christians in the English-speaking world tend to hear Handel's oratorio Messiah and understand the story by the fact that we, first of all, understand the Scriptures. We have an acquaintance and a knowledge of the Scriptures that is brought to a new dimension of understanding by Charles Jennings in his libretto, the text to the oratorio, and then is set to dynamic, memorable, and majestic music by Handel. But as we listen to Messiah, there's several things we ought to keep in mind. First of all, Professor Stapert is very helpful in indicating that there was a specific theological context into which this oratorio was to arrive, and that was the challenge of deism. Now, deism was then, and now, a competitor religion to theism, and in particular to Christianity. The God of theism is a creator God who removes himself from active involvement in his creation. The God of the deists explains how the universe came to be, but explains nothing of the events of humanity or of the natural order. The God of deism is removed and inactive into the void of that very attractive alternative faith to Christianity. In the midst of that 18th century period after the Enlightenment, when there were so many live questions and so many people who were beginning to wonder if Christianity really had that great compelling story we know as the gospel, well, that is when Jennings and Handel enter with Messiah. Now, Handel is a storyteller. He uses music to tell the story. And when he tells the story of Messiah, it's interesting to know where he did, and thus by reference also where he did not begin. He begins in the prophecy to Isaiah, Comfort ye my people. And thus Handel begins, as Jennings began, with the promise of comfort to God's people, and then there follows the entire story of redemption. But it's interesting to note where Handel and where Jennings did not begin. They did not begin with human sinfulness. They did not begin with the great problem of human depravity and the fall that occasioned the need for a redemption. They don't begin with any particular understanding of sin. There are references to sin and iniquity, but there is no particular investment in convincing the audience of Messiah of their sinfulness. There are several other things that are fascinating. There's a very selective use of Scripture in Messiah. For instance, uh, only a few texts of Scripture are repeated, and those are all from Isaiah. Isaiah 9, 40, 53, and 60. Components of those four chapters appear over and over again. Now, there are several portions of Scripture from the Old Testament that are woven together in order to tell the story, and a few also from the New Testament. Now, Professor Stapert told us something very important, and that is the fact that in these great solos and arias, in the particular pieces of music that tell the story, where a soloist is reciting the biblical story in voice, Jesus does not appear, and for good reason. As Professor Stapert said, it would have been awkward and considered inappropriate to have a character represent Jesus. So instead, there are references to him. But unlike in the Gospels, where you find the words of Jesus spoken by Jesus, well, Jennings and Handel instead weave the story from other biblical texts in order that the prophets tell the story in anticipation and the angels and the heavenly host tell the story in its conclusion. There are other things that are interestingly missing. Although there's a clear focus on the cross, there is absolutely no reference to the clear texts in Scripture which deal with a doctrine of atonement. There is no particular explanation as to how the suffering and death of Christ and his resurrection achieve for us our salvation. 
Now that means that as we listen to Messiah, we need to keep in mind that it was written for an audience that would in the main have known the contours of the Christian story, would have known the great story and architecture of the gospel. And so there are clear implications in this uh, in this story. There are clear assumptions being made by the composer and the librettist in terms of what an audience should be expected to know. Now, when we listen to Messiah, we listen to this great oratorio, we are listening with ears that are tuned to hear the same scriptures in basically the same way that Jennings and Handel used them. We do hear the prophet speaking of the Messiah who would come, and we know that that Messiah is none other than Jesus Christ. And so what we have in this particularly Christian reading of the Old Testament is an oratorio that helps us to understand the great theme of promise and fulfillment. And so the promise with which the oratorio begins, given by God through his prophet Isaiah to his people, a promise of comfort, is transformed by the time we end this oratorio, not only with the comfort given to God's redeemed people, but to the great joy and overflowing hallelujah of the declarations of the glory of the Lamb, who achieves for us that very salvation. Now, if we know the historical background and the theological context of this oratorio, that helps us to understand why it is such a majestic and moving assertion of Orthodox Christology, of, of why it would have such an impact in the post-Enlightenment world of presenting the Christian gospel, not only in terms of its facts and truth claims, but in terms of a great cultural and musical composition that would reach not only the mind and the ears, but would reach the heart and the soul. That's the great power of music. There is no way that anyone can listen to Messiah, especially a believer, and not find heart and, and mind and soul literally cresting and, and, and rising, exhilarated by the music. And there should be no apology for that. But we should also understand the danger in that. Music can be very seductive in that lies can be put to music with almost equally majestic force. And that's, what, that's why we must test all things by the scriptures. The real test of Handel's Messiah, when it comes to its orthodoxy, is the use of scripture. And, you know, the great protection there is the fact that every single word of this oratorio is directly drawn from scripture. And so one of the great protections when we're listening to Handel tell this story is the fact that every word that is going to be sung, every word that's going to be heard, is going to be coming from the scriptures. Now, theologians and church historians and biblical scholars have looked at Messiah over the years in order to consider its theological content, its apologetic strategy, uh, its musical contours, of course, and, and compositional features, but also have come to understand that there is a particular way that this oratorio has taken hold upon the Christian imagination. And so here in the Advent and Christmas season, when so many people are listening to and attending performances of Messiah, we come to understand that somehow in our minds, this story is fixated on the great truth of the incarnation from which everything else follows. Well, when we listen to Messiah, we find that we're involved in an act of biblical interpretation that was started by Charles Jennings as he indeed used his knowledge in order to assert Orthodox Christianity against the context of deism. We're also listening to the story told as there is great selectivity and art used in moving from one biblical occasion to the next, from one part of the story to the next, until we reach its climactic conclusions. You know, when we think about the Messiah, we think about this great oratorio, we tend to think of it remembering where we heard it first, where we may have heard it most recently, and then we realize that it has taken residence in our hearts and minds. Let me tell you of a great fear I have. 
I fear that we may be the last generation for whom this is true. I fear that going back to 1742 and recognizing that there never has been a time when this music has not been performed consistently from 1742 to the present, you have to wonder in the age of the iPod, will Messiah and similar works of majestic scale survive? You know, there is great loss in the loss of hymnody and a common hymnody that ties Christians together, especially within churches and denominations crossing generations. There's great loss when a musical achievement of the quality and scale and scope of Messiah is lost to the active imagination of Christians. So with that in mind, I would suggest to you that this Christmas season, well, it's a wonderful time to reappropriate your knowledge of Messiah, to expand your knowledge of this great work. And one way you can do that, of course, is by reading Professor Stapert's book, Handel's Messiah, Comfort for God's People, recently released by Erdman's. But you can also get a good recording And by means of that recording, you can come to know Messiah in a whole new way. Take the time to listen to it. Take the time to listen to it over and over again. Listen to it actively as you have opportunity. But especially during this season, let it also become a part of the background music of your life. That's no insult to this piece of music, nor to any other, because it can be heard in so many different levels. I want to recommend two recordings that I think you'll find easily accessible and quite enjoyable. The first is the CD set, also available by MP3 Download, which is conducted by Neville Mariner and features the Academy and Choristers of St. Martin in the Fields Church in London. It's a massive and wonderful two-CD selection, very commonly accessible and available just about anywhere quality music is found. But I also want to recommend something that you might not know about, and that is a spectacular DVD presentation of the 250th anniversary performance of Messiah plus a documentary that was done about the work. This was done back in 1992, and it is also conducted by Sir Neville Mariner, and uh, it involves musicians there in London. It is majestic. It is known as Handel's Messiah plus Forever and Ever. And you'll find links to these recordings at my website at albermuller.com connected to this program. There are all kinds of recordings of Messiah, and the good news is there are ever more coming. But if you have an opportunity go to see and hear a performance and if you have the opportunity sing in that great choir singing the great music of messiah i want to let you know about a very important conference to be held on the southern seminary campus february 11 through 12 of 2011. on that date we're going to host our annual give me an answer collegiate conference which is specially designed to offer apologetic encouragement to college students We deal with the very real questions being asked by this generation. And as we look to the future, this year's theme is Recalibrate. Come join me along with Russell Moore and our special guest, C.J. Mahaney, as we challenge college students to focus on true theology and live a life of humble obedience. For more information, visit our website at www.sbts.edu. Thanks for joining me for Thinking in Public. Until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Moeller.